1: Decades ago, General Electric was the backbone of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, employing thousands of residents. You could buy a home in Pittsfield, and you could send your
2: kids to college, and you could have vacations, and you could own a car. And then
1: that all went away. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. This week, we'll look at revitalization efforts in the Berkshires, plus an urban planner who helped to shape some of New England's downtowns.
0: He envisioned a city where neighborhoods were really quite diverse. And
1: this time of year, there are many benefits to using wood heat.
3: It's all those fuzzy feel-good things you get when you buy produce from the farmer's market.
4: But what about the downsides? It might take 60, 80, 100 years for that tree you cut down, To be replaced by a tree of equivalent size. Plus,
5: reframing the way we look at apartment complex communities. I think what was great about my neighborhood is that, like, everyone cares about everyone's kids. It's Next.
6: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: I'm John Dankowski, Thanks for joining us. General Electric has left a big legacy in New England. The conglomerate was headquartered in suburban Fairfield, Connecticut, for four decades when it announced it was pulling up roots and moving to Boston, lured by incentives from Massachusetts. But facing financial troubles, the company said earlier this year it would scale back its planned Boston headquarters and return nearly $90 million to the state. Now, if these two towns feel jilted by General Electric, think about the impact the company had on the city of Pittsfield. Nearly 14,000 people worked at its plant in the Berkshires. But when those jobs went away, the city faced a problem. How to grow the economy without relying on another GE. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen has our story.
0: Just hang tight. I think they're on their way.
7: On a sidewalk on North Street in Pittsfield, a small but enthusiastic group is awaiting the arrival of Bright Abbey. It's July, and he's about to celebrate the grand opening of his African clothing store.
6: Hi. 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 People are ready for you.
7: (laughs) These well-wishers aren't just passers-by. Most represent economic development groups in the city, like Linda Dooley, member of the Pittsfield Economic Revitalization Corporation. As Abbey gets ready to cut the ribbon stretched across his new store. Dooley wishes him well.
4: Amen. May you spawn other businesses in our downtown community Amen. and in bring others to open up businesses in downtown Pittsfield. Amen. 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 Amen.
7: Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. This kind of support, even for small retailers, is strong in Pittsfield, a shift from the days when the region sought the return of a big employer like GE. As the crowd moves the celebration into the store, Keith Girard of the Massachusetts Small Business Development Center Network says every new business is important. What we'd like to say is that
2: we look to create local economies uh, with one business at a time.
7: Gerard, whose group helped Bright Abbey with financial planning, says one business attracts more businesses.
2: Like anything, things move like slowly and then all of a sudden it clicks and things are starting to click. have been clicking, actually, for a while.
7: He says in the last two or three years, there's been a positive shift in Pittsfield. But it's been a long time coming. General Electric sold off its last division about a dozen years ago. Well, before that, starting in the mid-1980s, the company laid off thousands of workers. It was a good place to work, says retiree Jim Russo, who worked in engineering at GE. You couldn't beat it. I mean, for the benefits they had and the pain they had, it was the best best around. Russo is eating lunch at a monthly gathering in Pittsfield of former employees. Richard Astori worked about 30 years for the company. He says GE did a lot for the city, that is, until it left. It crippled the city, really. I mean, you lost good paying jobs. And, you know, nothing took its place. Nothing as big did. GE had hired thousands of people with experience and without.
2: For decades, you could go to the Union Hall or to GE right out of high school and get a job, a union job with benefits.
7: Richard Floyd is a retired minister from Pittsfield's First Church of Christ.
2: And you could buy a home in Pittsfield, and you could send your kids to college, and you could have vacations, and you could own a car. And then that all went away.
7: Floyd arrived in Pittsfield in 1982, early enough to have a vivid memory of a bustling North Street. But later, stores started leaving.
2: After downtown Pittsfield and North Street retail dried up a bit, you, you got this sense of a loss of some of the cohesion of the community You know, something was really lost. I
8: lived through it as a child and then, you know, really young adult.
7: That's Jonathan Butler, who grew up in Cheshire in the late 1980s and 90s. He's now the president and CEO of One Berkshire, a business development group. Butler remembers the parents of friends who were unemployed or underemployed. And he says the massive job losses at GE led to families living in poverty.
8: That ultimately fuels problems with opioid abuse and you know drugs and alcohol and some of even the um, crime activity that we see in, in little pockets of, of uh, the Berkshires and in little small neighborhoods in Pittsfield that you know, that concerns us all.
7: Butler says the community is still recovering a generation and a half later, but he says the answer is not another GE.
8: If we were to have another employer with 10 or 15,000 jobs come in, that would scare me. I think that would scare those of us that work in in economic development.
7: If one employer of that scale makes a decision to leave, Butler says the region would spend another generation recovering. He says what's better for the Berkshires are smaller companies of different sizes, such as those with 25 to 40
8: employees. And if they want to expand, the expansion is usually, you know, five new jobs or seven new jobs. And we have a lot of that happening in the Berkshires, um, but it's healthy.
7: And Butler says if those companies decide to close up shop in today's Berkshire economy, the laid off workers will have what he calls a soft landing because there's a shortage of trained applicants.
8: Our big challenge right now isn't more jobs. It's actually having the workforce needed by the existing employers so that they themselves can thrive.
7: For example, General Dynamics, which replaced one of GE's divisions, has a couple dozen job openings in Pittsfield posted right now, some of which have been open for several months. To compound that problem, Pittsfield lost about 18 percent of its population since 1980. Pittsfield Mayor Linda Tire says now training programs at local high schools and colleges help to keep young people from leaving here.
3: They can go right from high school and get an entry-level position, at Berkshire Health Systems, or they can go on to Berkshire Community College and enter their nursing program. Besides training, Tyre
7: says economic resilience grows out of a diverse economy that in Pittsfield includes the arts, healthcare, small business, and advanced manufacturing. While GE has only a few employees still in Pittsfield, it remains one of the city's biggest property taxpayers. And as part of its Toxic Waste Cleanup Agreement, the company gave millions of dollars to the Pittsfield Economic Development Authority and the city.
3: Right now, we still have about $3.5 million in that fund, and we've had a number of successes using that money to uh, leverage
7: private investment. The city used it to help fund the Berkshire Innovation Center, located on old GE property, and to help fund the renovation of the Colonial Theater. Tyre says the arts economy used to exist mostly south and north of Pittsfield, but the restoration of the theater helped change that.
3: After that, we began to see more and more um, investment in the art and cultural economy, followed by more restaurants, more pubs, followed by people living downtown. It's a very deliberate effort.
7: Tire says there are more young professionals and active retirees living in downtown apartments. But not everyone feels things are getting better. We need somebody that will get up and do something. Mary Butler, a retired factory worker, cast her vote for Tire's opponent, city councilor Linda Mazio, in the mayoral preliminary election last month.
0: Make Pittsfield back to Pittsfield
7: used to be. North Street's dead. I was going to give it a funeral. It's on North Street, where Bright Abbey opened his shop in July. Now, he says, business is sometimes busy for a few days, and then no buyers.
2: It's on and off. I think that will be how the business runs in Pitfield.
9: That's what I see.
7: That's what he sees as he's getting started. At the beginning
2: of everything, there's a challenge, and you need to pursue and see how far you go. So I'm not giving up. Yeah, I'm not giving up.
7: Even if the city's economy faces challenges, most people aren't hankering for GE to start up again and save it. Not that the company could. This month it announced it's freezing the pensions of some current employees to reduce debt. Regardless, Pastor Richard Floyd says the city may have grown tired of being a teenager to the GE parent.
2: A lot of dependence on GE. But a certain resentment, too.
7: GE held all the cards, he says, but that's no longer true. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen.
1: Ed Logue is a name you probably don't know. But if you've spent any time thinking about how American cities changed in the last half of the 20th century, Logue played a pretty important role. A city designer who began his work in the 1950s in New Haven, Connecticut, Logue oversaw massive urban renewal projects in Boston and New York, that reimagines struggling cities as more modern and more prosperous. In her new book, Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age, author Elizabeth Cohen uses Logue's story to tell this history and to give new perspective on what he and others behind urban renewal projects were trying to do. Cohen is a professor of American Studies at Harvard, and she joins us from the studios of WBUR in Boston.
0: Elizabeth Cohen, welcome to Next. Thank you, John. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Why don't you describe, first of all, who Ed Logue was and what brought him to the city of New Haven to undergo these massive transformations?
0: Well, Ed Logue was a um, very committed uh, liberal of a New Deal bent who came out of Yale College and Yale Law School determined to do good and to make America a more equitable and democratic place. He ultimately went into uh, public life in government. He worked for Chester Bowles when he was governor of Connecticut. Uh, That was a very short governorship. He then followed Bowles to India and then returned to New Haven, where he had spent his early adult life. And he um, hooked up with Dick Lee, who had just been elected as a progressive mayor in New Haven, Um, We're talking now about 1953, and um, who had an ambition to address some very serious problems that New Haven was facing. And he saw in Ed Logue, who was working for him in his campaign, a partner who could do this with him.
1: You write in your book that the partnership that Lee and Logue forged in New Haven – Thus became the template for the kind of collaboration that Logue would repeatedly seek in his career. A committed elected official to run political interference while he, the administrative expert supported by a nationally recruited professional staff, determined what to do and how to pay for it. That sounds like a a pretty good template. Tell me more about their their relationship.
0: Basically, Logue was the, the person who figured out how to tap into the new federal money that had become available with the Housing Act of 1949, and there was a lot of money available to try to deal with some very deep problems that cities like New Haven were facing. You know, we have a an, a an understanding that the federal government did a tremendous amount to encourage suburban growth in the post-war period. But at the same time, there really was an investment being made in in cities. The investments
1: in the cities that Ed Logue took advantage of in a place like New Haven in many people's minds, exacerbated that that suburban growth. It was an investment in the cities that prioritized cars, people being able to drive from that nearby suburb right into the city, go to work, and then drive home again.
0: Well, it's very important that we put ourselves back into their mindset. Here they are. They're in cities that um, have been really declining for decades. That was definitely the case in New Haven. So here they are. They see middle-class tax-paying residents attracted to the suburbs. They see their place as a kind of regional retail center being challenged by shopping centers that department stores are moving into with their branch stores. And so what seemed to make sense to them was to try to figure out how to make cities work for the post-war period and that they felt depended on making them car friendly.
1: You you write that Ed Logue learned over time throughout his career that engaging people in neighborhoods around issues of education, but also just the physical streetscape was increasingly important. Explain for us how he learned that lesson the hard way in his early years in New Haven that he later then took to Boston and New York, that maybe he did a little bit better in communicating his, his ideas of urban renewal to people.
0: This was a very gradual Lesson. So when he starts off in the 1950s, he does feel with Lee that they are engaged in a democratic process, but they define that in a very different way than he would by uh, the 1970s and 80s. They think that if they are the experts who bring, you know, deep knowledge and smarts and sort of good strategy in getting resources for the city to the task, and then consult with leaders of organized interest groups in the city, they will actually be carrying out a democratic process. This was not just, um, you know, kind of white middle-class people like Logue who were promoting it. Actually, the leadership of black organizations in New Haven, the NAACP um, and CORE, Saw in urban renewal a chance to create opportunity and integration for black residents in New Haven who had been stuck in inner city neighborhoods, paying high rents in, you know, deteriorating housing that landlords felt no motivation to improve. But what happened over time is that the replacement housing that many, uh, working class people, including African-Americans, looked forward to, couldn't keep up with the demolition that was happening as they decided that the only way to deal with deteriorating neighborhoods was to tear them down. And so frustration mounted. And over time, African-Americans particularly found themselves isolated in neighborhoods like the Hill um, without resources and without many choices. And so there really was a change among um, the population um, in, in cities like New Haven pushing back and saying, you know what, you've got to consult us when you decide what's best for us in our neighborhoods.
1: Explain, if you would, the type of city that Ed Logue imagined. What, what did it look like?
0: He felt the only way to really create an equitable society where everybody had the opportunity to get a decent education, to have the benefit of good services, was for people to live in a socially mixed environment. And that otherwise, middle class people would always figure out how to get the best. So he had a vision that um, he very much tried to promote. But it took a long time to have the tools to do that. Um, He certainly didn't have those tools in New Haven. He had some more tools in Boston. When he finally got to New York State, where he headed an organization that was a statewide urban renewal agency called the Urban Development Corporation, when he tried to put his dream into action and build affordable housing in nine fairly well-off Westchester suburbs, he ended up facing enormous pushback. And that ultimately led to the the, 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 the the end of the UDC, as well as his role as president of it, because he was forced to resign.
1: So then let's end on that. And, and maybe we can talk about some lessons that, that we learned from Ed Logue in his time. You, you talk a lot about his ability to attract federal funding to these projects. Do, do you believe that the federal government needs to play a, a larger role moving forward?
0: I would say, John, that that's probably the most important contribution I hope the book makes. I'm Really trying to show that there were many mistakes made in urban renewal. Many of the stereotypes are true. But There really was a commitment that was made from the top down to provide housing and um, other sorts of benefits to many Americans, and that um, we have moved over time, and it began with Nixon in the early 70s when he put a moratorium on all spending on housing in place, and uh, Carter didn't do a whole lot more. And Reagan came in and slashed HUD budgets and other budgets that were really paying for a kind of a welfare state infrastructure in the American style. And instead, they promoted um, an alternative view that somehow the private sector could solve these problems. And I think we see today with our crumbling infrastructure that Uh, The private sector understandably is motivated by profit and the strategies that cities have to work with to squeeze what they can out of private developers, out of corporations that might come into the city like Amazon are just not sufficient to deal with the growing inequality in our society that is particularly manifest in American cities.
1: Elizabeth Cohen is a professor of American Studies at Harvard and is the author of the new book, Saving America Cities Ed Logan, the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks, John. Coming up, it's getting chilly out, but is it okay to heat with wood? We'll debate. We'll also learn about another way to burn wood that puts carbon back in the earth. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
1: There's this product called biochar that's supposed to help ease climate change and pollution. It's a form of charcoal, but it's not used as a fuel. It's actually used to sequester carbon, to improve soil quality, and to keep agricultural runoff out of waterways. Biochar can be made from straw, husks, wood chips, landscaping waste, or even manure and sewage sludge. And as John Kalish reports, around the globe it's solving some big problems and some small ones. Biochar is produced by baking
9: biomass in a process known as pyrolysis, which involves cooking organic matter at high temperatures with little or no oxygen. It's got to get to really about a 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit to make good quality char. That's Hugh McLaughlin, chief technology officer of a Massachusetts startup called NextChar. His company recently started making biochar from almond and walnut shells in California's Central Valley. What biochar does is it helps soil be better soil. One of the functions of soil is to capture water when it's available and make it available to the plant not have it evaporate away or drain out of the root zone and biochar is very effective at that another massachusetts entrepreneur bob wells uses biochar in his small cape cod farm where he says it's done wonders for the sandy soil there
1: well, i've been using it since 2005 and the difference in the soil is very dramatic It's gone from sand to being this rich, dark loam that produces a
2: lot more plants than the old sandy soil did.
9: Wells runs New England Biochar, which makes the product for gardeners and landscapers taking care of those million-dollar summer homes on Cape Cod. This company also manufactures biochar cookers for people who want to do it themselves.
1: The demand is huge, and I don't spend any money on advertising, that's for sure we've built very large systems that take a whole year to build and we've got small
5: backyard stuff that we can build several in a day
9: at his two-acre homestead in jaffrey new hampshire doug clayton makes biochar in a homemade system he calls the jolly roger it consists of three steel drums and a four foot long chimney Clayton fills one drum with wood chips discarded by utility crews on local roads, and another drum with broken twigs and pieces of small branches. An electric fan regulates the speed of combustion. Clayton's system is known as a retort. Gases emitted in the cooking process are utilized as a fuel source.
8: I spent years perfecting this model. This process made it cleanly so that you didn't make a lot of smoke.
9: Actually, when I looked at the chimney of Clayton's cooker, I didn't see any smoke coming out. Because they make use of the gases created by the cooking biomass, and the heat generated in the process can be used for other purposes, biochar kilns are said to have practically no carbon footprint.
1: When our system's running, it's thundering. There's so much energy moving through it. We can use the energy that's coming off of
5: it, too.
9: Bob Wells uses that energy to heat his home on Cape Cod. In Tennessee, a multi-million dollar biochar plant is producing electricity from the gases produced from wood waste being processed. The same principle is at play in a Vermont kiln built out of a bunch of junk lying around two rural Vermont households. This uses that gas to heat itself. That's Luke Persons, one of three Vermonters behind a small startup called Green State Biochar. Its homemade biochar kiln is housed in a greenhouse with walls built from wooden shipping pallets. Wooden chips purchased from a local sawmill are the feedstock. Donna Pion, the business brains behind Green State, notes that landowners usually have to pay to dispose of tree stumps, which she sees as another potential source of biomass.
4: If you let them just rot in the ground, it's releasing carbon. If you take that stump and turn it into biochar, you're sequestering the carbon.
9: Green State Biochar won a $30,000 competitive grant from the state of Vermont to mitigate the impact of phosphorus in Vermont's waterways. Its biochar has filtered out more than 90% of the phosphorus at two dairy farms. Roger Peone says that biochar could also be used to filter blue-green algae from Lake Champlain.
8: We just want to make some clean water.
9: Peone and his partners are competing for another grant in the next round of Vermont's funding for phosphorus runoff mitigation. And if they win it, they'll install more biochar filters on more dairy farms. Some environmentalists worry that emerging carbon credit markets for biochar production in Finland and Europe will create an incentive to cut down forests. Vermont biologist Rachel Smolker is with the group Biofuels Watch. We're in such a dire situation with deforestation and all the pressures that are
7: happening on ecosystems. All that biomass has to come from somewhere. You're going to have to go out there and, say, cut down some trees in order to burn them and create charcoal.
9: But in Jackson, Maine, farmer David McDaniel has figured out a way to harvest wood in a sustainable manner using a centuries-old woodland management technique known as coppicing. With the help of a USDA grant, he made biochar from a tree known as the speckled alder.
8: You cut the tree and take the above-ground growth to use the biomass, but the roots would send up new alder that would actually continue the growth of the tree.
9: When the alder was about 9 feet tall, McDaniel cut it and ran it through a wood chipper. Then he dried the alder chips in a solar kiln that he made as part of his grant, and that became his biochar feedstock. He was surprised how quickly the speckled alder grew back.
8: There are other species that might work. I know willow trees are used for rapid biomass coppicing. I think in Europe they prefer some hardwood
9: species. McDaniel has a new USDA grant to develop a coppicing plantation. He plans to use the coppiced alder to make more biochar. For the New England News Collaborative,
1: I'm John Kalish. John's story about the boom in biochar got us thinking about a conversation we had last year about burning wood as fuel. Around New England, people use wood stoves to stay warm during these long winters, in part because wood is available. It sets a nice mood, and it's got to be better for the environment than, say, oil, right? Well, that issue was on the mind of one listener to Vermont Public Radio's Brave Little State podcast.
5: What are the environmental and
6: economic benefits of wood heat in Vermont? And then what are, what are the costs to that?
1: That's Coco Mosley, and her question led Emily Corwin and Angela Evansy of VPR to find an answer. They joined me earlier this year. Angela and Emily, welcome back to Next.
4: Hi, John. Hey, John.
1: Angela, in this episode, you you kind of played the good cop here, and you were looking for some of the positives of heating with wood. What are some things you found?
3: Yeah, so as far as the positives go, you really couldn't find a more enthusiastic cheerleader for wood heat than Emma Hansen. Emma is the Wood Energy Coordinator at the Vermont Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation, And she says that when it comes to economic factors, for example, wood heat is almost always cheaper than heating with fossil fuels, certainly more predictable, which is great if you're a homeowner. Um, And it also keeps money in the local economy. Here's what she told me. My favorite thing to point out when I'm talking about wood heat in Vermont is that when Vermonters heat with fossil fuel, 78 cents of every dollar leaves the state. Whereas when we heat with locally sourced wood, the inverse of that is true. So all that money stays right here in our communities, creating jobs for our neighbors, retaining local wealth. It's all those fuzzy feel-good things you get when you buy produce from the farmer's market.
1: Wow. So that's interesting. So uh, a big economic benefit, that's something we usually don't associate with uh, heating with wood.
3: Yeah. I mean, Emma has stickers on her laptop that say things like local wood, local good. (laughs) And it is sort of a philosophy similar to the local food movement, thinking about sort of supporting your local economy by sourcing your heat from where you live. And another interesting benefit I heard about from a lot of people is kind of a economic environmental hybrid. And it has to do with the logging industry and sustainable forestry. And basically the argument is that if you don't have enough demand for firewood and other low-grade wood that gets sort of processed and burned, so if not enough people basically are heating with wood, then it destabilizes the whole logging market. And this makes it more likely that property owners who own big tracts of forest land Mm -hmm. will sell it off for development because they won't be able to extract enough value from having it logged. And it also makes it harder for the loggers to practice selective timber management and also basically make ends meet in their work. Uh, I talked to Don Pratt and his son, Jordan. They're both loggers, and Jordan owns his own forest management company. And here's what they said.
2: I think this market, the firewood market, has helped a lot of loggers survive. It got to the point to where it's like, yeah, do we go to work today? Your older generation pretty well creamed most of the high grade logs as far as I was concerned.
5: You know, that's what they focused on because there was no market for firewood and no big they couldn't make a living off it, let's put it that way. And nowadays, it's for us, our firewood is more what we make most of our money on.
1: Wow, so the idea of the working forest being good for the economy and As you say, it supports local businesses. So those are some positives. All right, Emily, you're the bad cop here, though. What are some of the downsides you found about heating with wood?
4: So some of the downsides include both air pollution and the environmental and health consequences of that, and then also the CO2 that's emitted from wood heat and, you know, questions about exactly how carbon-friendly wood heat is uh, when it comes to climate change. And, you, you know, if we could talk first about air pollution and in particular health effects, that's something that, you know, struck me as one of the most surprising and sort of uh, concerning things that that I learned in doing this research. I talked to Zoe Chafe. She's a researcher at Cornell University. And, you know, she talked about what's called PM 2.5. This stands for particulate matter that's smaller than 2.5 microns. And this is made up of all different kinds of things, tar, you know, particles of you know different kinds of things that come off of wood when you burn it. You know, at the very sort of basic uh, level... Wood is a dirty, it's a dirty heat. The more efficient your stove, the less air pollution. But the stuff that comes off of wood when you burn it is is not good. And she talks a little bit about what happens in the body when you inhale PM 2.5.
7: What happens is that the particles can go deep into our bodies and um, they can travel so deep into our lungs that they actually cross over into our blood and the smallest ones can even go into our brain.
4: And so, you know, what happens when you breathe this stuff, Zoe explained to me, is that it can lead to and exacerbate like things like lung disease, heart disease and asthma. So it's, it's pretty concerning when it comes to, to health.
1: So so that great smell, the beautiful smell of burning firewood that I associate with uh, being in a rural place in Vermont in the wintertime, that's actually getting a whole lot of bad particulate matter into my lungs.
4: I'm so sorry to tell you, John, but that's true.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So there's there's that. That's a downside. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people think of wood heating as is, is being good for the environment, at least in comparison to something like burning oil or burning coal. So what do we know, Emily, about the environmental impacts of the practice?
4: This is more complicated and it's interesting because a lot of colleges and even municipalities are adopting wood heat in order to meet carbon neutrality goals. And yet the question of whether wood heat is carbon neutral is changing and it's complicated. Traditionally, people have said that, you know, when a new tree is allowed to grow in the place of a tree that's been cut for wood heat, it will absorb all of the CO2 that's been emitted, making wood heat carbon neutral. There are two reasons why that's now not as correct (laughs) as we once considered it. First of all, burning wood is a very high CO2 activity. It, it emits more CO2 than other kinds of fuel that you burn for heat. Although it it will be, much of it will be reabsorbed in 60 to 100 years, increasingly we're coming to understand, scientists are, are coming to understand, that we don't have that much time in order to, you know, really beat the most, uh, some, some really scary effects of climate change. So that's one thing, is just the question, like, you can call it carbon neutral, but do we really have that much time. The second thing is that increasingly scientists like this fellow, Andy Friedland, who is a forest ecosystem scientist at Dartmouth College, increasingly he and his colleagues are finding that When you do cut a tree down and you burn it, it's not just the CO2 from burning that fuel that goes into the atmosphere. It also has these other side consequences that release more CO2 or speed up the release of CO2. So here's Andy Friedland. Um, He's a forest ecosystem scientist at Dartmouth College. But the trouble is, as we mentioned earlier, it might take 60, 80, 100 years for that tree you cut down to be replaced by a tree of equivalent size. So what about in that intervening 100 years? And what about today when, if you agree with me, that climate change is an extremely important issue, if not the most important issue facing humanity? What do we do in that intervening time? And so there's all these reasons why, in fact, the CO2 equation that people had been doing around uh, wood heat has changed and is, is not as beneficial as we once thought.
1: So Emily, I'll ask you first. When it comes down to it, I mean, did you find that heating with wood is better for the environment than, say, gas or electric heat? What do we think?
4: There are so many variables when it comes to this question. Um, I did not do a like complicated matrix analysis of all the different <laughs> kinds of heat. But here's here's what the experts who are so concerned about climate change are saying. Um, they say, first of all, there are. Um, bad things about every single kind of fuel. Even solar power, you know, solar powered electric, you're you've got to make the solar panels, you've got to transport them often from China. N- nothing's perfect. And so what a lot of people suggest is diversifying if you can. Again, this is like if you have the privilege of being able to change your heating source, you know, being able to to diversify creates more options and, and helps get new technologies, you know, moving forward. But really, like, the number one most important thing you can do is just be efficient. That's sort of the bottom line. And so whatever your heat is, it's, it's so much more important to make sure that your technology is efficient, your home is insulated, that you're just using less.
1: How about you, Angela? I mean, what are some pros and cons you, you found out as you were reporting this episode?
3: So as you said, John, I mean, I sort of played the good cop in this episode. Um, and that's because I do have some personal bias in favor of heating with wood. Um, I heat my home primarily with wood. And, you know, in the episode, we talk about these sort of more ineffable qualities that wood heat has that I think draws so many people to really appreciate, you know, the warmth of the flame and the sort of way that you feel good after you sort of stack up four cords of wood for the year and it's a good workout and you're outside. And then in the winter when you're sitting in front of your stove, it's, it's so cozy. Mm. And and we can't really quantify that, but it's something that comes up a lot, right? Like, what, else, what other heat source could be as cozy as a wood stove? And I think a lot of New Englanders feel that way. That being said, you know, the, the air quality considerations were a big wake-up call for me reporting this episode and finding out what Emily was learning. And coincidentally, we happen to be um, in the process of upgrading our stove at home while Emily and I were reporting this episode. And I feel really good about the fact that we now do have a stove that was made in 2019 as opposed to 1970 um, because it's our new stove is certified by the Environmental Protection Agency for how cleanly and efficiently it burns. So to those sort of points that Emily was discussing, you know, there, there are things that even if you're devoted to burning heat or it is just the fuel source that is right for you, there are things you can do um, to sort of improve or mitigate some of the, I guess, cons of the fuel source.
1: So you're, you're feeling both good and cozy this winter? I am, that's a, that, that's a good feeling uh, Angela Evans sees VPR's managing editor For podcasts Host and creator Of Brave Little State Emily Corwin Is VPR's investigative Reporter and editor They brought us a story well, Really it's a question That we've been asking Ourselves for a while Is it better to heat With wood or not Emily and Angela Thanks so much For joining us
4: Thanks John Thanks John
1: Coming up Bucking negative stereotypes about apartment complex communities in America. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
1: A new children's book called The Night is Yours captures a snapshot of life growing up in an apartment complex. This is Abdul Razak Zachariah's first book, And it's based loosely on his childhood, with his sister as inspiration for the main character, Amani. Abdul grew up in an apartment complex in West Haven, Connecticut, and he's here to talk with us now. Welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell us about the place where you grew up.
5: Yeah. So, uh, the apartment complex is called Terrace Heights in West Haven. Um, it's a pretty diverse community. Um, I grew up with a lot of different children uh, of immigrants, including myself, um, a lot of children of color, um, and people of varying kind of working class and lower middle class uh, income. And the apartment complex was just had a huge courtyard and an open space that all the kids would play in in the afternoon and during the summers. So, I got to really think a lot about that when I was writing the story. Yeah, the, the story is about a,
1: a nighttime game of, of hide-and-seek, and, seek, and it, it, it illustrates something that seems pretty clear from the place where you grew up. It was a, it was a good place to be a kid and, and to play.
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's the kind of space that I think um, should be a, available to a lot of kids. You know, if they don't have a courtyard, then they should have a park near their home. But it, it allowed for all of us to interact and kind of see the, the lives that we had with each other in an open and shared space.
1: One of your goals here is to upend negative stereotypes about communities like yours, apartment mm-hmm. complexes, what do you think some of the negative stereotypes are and what were you trying to to disprove, I suppose?
5: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things when I was growing up is the assumption that uh, apartment complexes and kind of like densely populated um, living spaces in urban areas can be very dangerous. And for myself, I didn't experience that with my apartments. I experienced a lot of light and vibrancy and, and you know, adults and older teenagers kind of like offering their advice and guidance to younger kids. And it seemed like an intergenerational space for growth and, and opportunity and development. And I think that narrative where if you bring a community as close together like that and provide them with a space to really engage with each other, that's that's the narrative that I wanted to share about apartment complexes in its most ideal form. It's so interesting because, you know, starting in the 1950s, I
1: suppose, so much of America decided that the real dream for their kids was to have their own backyard. And Mm -hmm. it it wasn't to live in an apartment complex with a bunch of other people. But what that meant was a a lot of kids, I suppose, playing by themselves or maybe with a few neighbors in the backyard. Mm -hmm. I I love in your book how you illustrate this courtyard. And there's a sense that that all the parents, all the families, all the kids are kind of watching each Mm -hmm. other and kind of watching out for one another.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, um, recognizing and understanding that shift in history, it was a period of time where people kind of stopped, uh, thinking about everyone else's kids. And I think what was great about my neighborhood is that like everyone cares about everyone's kids. And we all think like for my kids to grow well, they have to have good friends in this neighborhood and have to watch over that same group of kids as well.
1: I I wonder if you can read just a a short passage from the book. It's right in the middle. And and as I said, there's a, there's a, a, a game of hide and seek that's, that's just started. And, um, Maybe you can
5: read for us a little bit. Yeah, of course. One by one, your friends find porch staircases to hide behind, bushes to crouch between, and piles of leaves that were just raked up this morning. The night is an extension of your skin, all of you children, blending in when you want it to and popping out when you want it to. Because the darkness of the night is yours, like the darkness of your skin. Can you talk a bit more about that idea and this Mm -hmm. idea of the darkness of
1: your night and the darkness of your skin?
5: Yeah, I think for me, um, another piece of writing this story was trying to create a narrative with a character of color in which it was not, you know, a narrative about the civil rights movement or slavery or kind of the negative aspects of being a person of color in the United States or negative historical moments and was also not a kind of like exceptionality, first black person to do this type of story. I wanted to showcase a child doing a regular activity that any other child could experience, but also censor the fact that this child is a person of color, is a black child, and they're very beautiful, and kind of using the fact that the nighttime is, is this kind of darker period, but it's also a very beautiful time, and thinking that the darkness of my own family skin I consider very beautiful, I thought those layers made sense to overlap in some way. The
1: other thing that I think this does is is a lot of children's books treat the darkness in the night as as mm-hmm. a scary time to yeah. overcome, and and you like lean right into it. You you embrace the night.
5: For me, when I was a kid, the nighttime was when I was able to think the most. I would step outside the apartment complex and like sit on the porch and just kind of look up, and I felt like I got to be contemplative, really like see everything around me and understand the space and feel open and, in a way that the world was not allowing me to do otherwise.
1: You also mentioned earlier that the people who live in your apartment complex, Mm -hmm. it's a diverse group of people, not just not just ethnically or racially, people who, who come from different parts of the world. Tell me about how that influenced you.
5: Yeah, I think I ended up becoming accustomed to diversity in a way that I didn't realize was um, rare around the country. Um, and West Haven in itself is an oddly diverse place, same as, same as New Haven. And I got to really understand what it's like to engage in someone's culture and really respect it, such that when I got to places where there was a lot more isolation, sometimes my school or sometimes going to college, um, everyone would kind of like talk about the importance of diversity. And I would never be able to see that in those spaces because I understood diversity as as much more integrated and and uh, collaborative through my environment and, and the apartment. Yeah, I,
1: I'm wondering if you can talk about your your experience when you went to college. It was yeah. only just really a few miles away from this apartment complex, but mm-hmm. you went to Yale University, which mm. is in New Haven, Connecticut. It's a it's a majority minority city like the other small cities in connecticut but it 's also the place where there 's yale and there 's this this grand tradition i 'm wondering how the diversity that you experienced growing up was
5: um, was thought of uh, on the Yale campus. How maybe mm-hmm. it was a different experience for you. I mean, the way that admissions ends up is there's kind of a manufactured diversity that happens. You know, you admit a certain number of students of color and you can and you can present a certain percentage of students of color you have there. Um, and then there's a wonderful thing at Yale with the cultural centers where students can kind of be part of different cultural activities and cross-interact with each other. But the hardest thing was when you were in an, in an actual classroom, you would likely be, you know, the one black person, the one person of color in many of your classes, especially in your first couple of years. And I think that was a level of frustration that that I experienced immediately that I didn't get because when I, when I was at home, you know, I, I didn't ever feel like I was the only one. So to jump into Yale and jump into a place that kind of is, is touting um, an increase in diversity, but to not see that in the way I understood it was, was frustrating. It made it hard to adjust in those first couple of years. Yeah, how did you deal with it? Um, I think the biggest thing was leaning into a lot of the different activities that are there to support both students of color and first-generation college students. So I was really involved in the Afro-American Cultural Center. I was a member of Shades of Yale, which is a a singing group focused on music of the African diaspora and African-American tradition. Everything that would allow me to take lessons about my own culture and my cultural identity, learn from others, and then share that with students who are coming in to help their experience and transition.
1: What do you hope people take away from this book? What do you hope that people see in it?
5: I really hope that they see the value in in black children altogether, just looking through the eyes of Imani, but seeing the value in kind of sharing space with your neighbors and really engaging and watching over each other's children and not like parenting someone else's child, but rather like seeing and supporting their own growth and development. If you see that, there's a kid who makes a mistake not going and scalding them, not going and calling the police on them, but going and talking with them and talking with their parents and seeing how you can be helpful to support their growth and, and really see the spaces and communities as places for development and education. Does your family still live in that apartment complex? They don't. Um, we live around the corner though I live in New Haven. they live around the corner in West Haven um, and this apartment complex is very close to UNH. So some of the uh, apartment units have been taken up by UNH students now, so it's a very different environment. The last few times I've visited it's extremely quiet. I don't really see kids playing outside so that's been an interesting change.
1: The author of the book is Abdul Razak Zakaria, and the book is called "The Night is Yours." Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Lori Mack and Glenn Alexander. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Noel Mikarelli, and the Mallet Brothers Band. I'm John Dankoski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.